wonderful to be with you on the Lord's Day. Uh, such a pleasure uh, to be among other saints, and uh, we're so grateful at Doxa Church to have the privilege and opportunity to labor in Clay County to bring the gospel to bear in our city and in our communities, and so uh, it's with great enthusiasm and eagerness that I'm here with you this morning. Uh, both Pastor Matt and Pastor Joseph, you have incredible men uh, that lead you faithfully week in and week out, and uh, Pastor Matt has been a, a great, great friend and shepherd even to my own heart as I'm navigating some of the realities of being a church planner and uh, trying to establish a church in the city of Green Cove, and so... I'm grateful for the opportunity for him to let me share the pulpit today, and uh, without further ado, if you got your Bible, if you can join me in the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Mark, uh, as you're turning in your Bible, we'll be arriving at chapter 12, uh, chapter 12, and as you recall, maybe just a couple months ago, we celebrated Easter, and what we have in the text today is we're in that final week of the Lord Jesus' life. Uh, right here in the final days uh, of Lord's life, he's entered into the city of Jerusalem. He's entered into the temple. There have been opportunities for him to be praised as the anointed king. And we see him go and cleanse the temple yet a second time. And as we arrive into chapter 12, there is a series of questions that are being presented. Uh, several is from his critics, uh, from his enemies, and There'll be an opportunity for Jesus to flip the script a little bit and turn a question in their direction. But as we come here in Matt, uh, Mark chapter 12, as you look in verses 28 and proceeding, is that you'll see Jesus is in another situation. If you are taking notes and if you're kind of keeping up, what we'll notice in the text, a very familiar text in Mark chapter 12, verse 28 is you'll see that there's an approach in verse 28. There's an answer in verses 29 through 31. There's an acknowledgement in verses 32 and 33, and then an announcement in verse 34. I know that you probably didn't catch all that, but that's what we're going to get moving through here in just a moment. If you can stand with me without further ado as we read the Scriptures. I tell my congregation that this is not just a physical exercise uh, but it's what we're saying about the Bible. We believe that this is the inerrant, all-sufficient Word of God, and it not only has the power to cre create life, but it also has the power to recreate life. And as we come into Mark chapter 12, the Word of the Lord says this, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord for God's people. You may be seated. Human beings love uh, to ask questions, don't we? If you're a parent, you understand this well, because if you have really small children, they ask you like hundreds of questions in a span of like just a few minutes, right? You, you've been like, they're shooting it always. Hey, what about this? What about this? But human beings, they love to ask questions. What's the best phone? Might be some debate in here whether that's an Android or whether that's an iPhone. Who's the best baseball player, whether that's Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Willie Mays, Henry Aaron. Who's the greatest leader? FDR, Caesar Augustus, Moses, Winston Churchill. What's the greatest album? Might divide the room right here. The White Album by the Beatles or Joshua Tree by U2. Human beings love to ask questions. There's no shortage of questions. We want to know who, we want to know what is the greatest. And the interest is not some new phenomenon as the text demonstrates so clearly for us. We have a question presented by a scribe to the Lord. Look at verse 28. As you look at verse 28, the scribe asks, which commandment is the most important of all. Now previously, the Lord has already fielded uh, questions from his opponents. All of those questions were asked with an intent and a motivation. They're, they're trying to destroy Jesus. If you go earlier in Mark's gospel, they are deciding that the religious leaders want to get in cahoots with the Herodians that they dislike and want to destroy our Lord because of his ministry and because of the things that he taught. And here, as you might expect, the personification of the wisdom of God, Jesus answers perfectly. In fact, if you notice in verse 28, what prompted the scribe to ask the Lord this question, Jesus answered what? Love God, love your neighbor. The two great commandments, the two great loves that have served many churches and Christians as mission statements and purpose statements for life. Maybe you yourself use these two commandments in which the Lord gives an answer to this most important question. That's fine and well, but let's look and consider this most important question because it provokes us to really think and consider really what Jesus is saying towards the end of the text. He's not saying that it's, I want you to think about it, it's not Jesus saying that it's not less than loving God and loving neighbor because Jesus will account for this in Matthew's account. He'll say all the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. But it's more than that, right? 
we understand that the gospel, we understand that Christianity is not primarily built off of doing, but it's formed and informed by what? A done. Of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And Jesus is showing this and showing us, showing this man and us, that there's more. Notice what the scribe affirmed, how he affirmed. Look at how he responded positively to this moment. He says, you are right. And Jesus affirms the scribe again and responds positively to the wisdom of the scribe. Look at verse 34. He says the most important part of the text. Look at it. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Think about that. Think about it. What, a, what an incredible statement. What an incredible statement. Even in the midst of the scribe's wisdom, even in the midst of the scribe's morality, Jesus says he's only, he's only what? He's only near the kingdom of God. That's serious business. Some in this very room might only be near the kingdom of God. How do you know you're from or in the kingdom of God? That's really the question that provokes us to think and consider and ponder and think about this morning is that it's only a couple things in life that it's okay, it's fine and well to be near, right? There's only a couple things. You might think it's okay to be near in the game of horseshoes, right? It's okay to be near when you're throwing axes or you're in the midst of an archery tournament. It's okay to kind of be close to the bullseye, right? It's okay to be near. But when it comes to the things of eternity, when it comes to the things of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, it's not enough. It's not enough to be near the kingdom of God. See, being near the kingdom of God, it's the difference between heaven and hell, right? Being near the kingdom of God is the difference between the eternal judgment of God in the eternal mercy of God. And brothers and sisters, friends, this morning, how do you know whether you're near the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of God? How do you know whether you're a true citizen of the kingdom of God? That's the question that you and I must wrestle with this morning. It's one that I have prayed which the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of your hearts so that you might behold and respond appropriately, not only for the glory of God, but also your personal joy, the good of others that are in your midst in this covenant community, and the watching world. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning. How do you know whether you are near or in the kingdom of God? First, let's consider the commandment to love God supremely, found in verses 28 through 30. Return with me to the text in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is most important of all? 
After Jesus had answered a question concerning the resurrection in verses 18 through 27, a scribe decided to seek out the Lord. This is, by the way, this is kind of what happens when you understand who the Lord Jesus truly is. Amen? Is that when you understand the character and the nature and the personhood and especially the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you understand that, when you are living real life in a fallen world, when you know who Lord, the Lord Jesus is, it prompts you when you're dealing with circumstances to run to who? Jesus. And here this man has brought himself to the Lord Jesus. He's bringing the wrestlings of his heart to the Lord because here we are, found here with this scribe, a religious leader, but not only a religious leader, a scribe is a lawyer. And he's overheard the dispute between Jesus and the other leaders, religious leaders, that Jesus answered them well. And here we have someone with a little bit different posture of heart. There's no malice in his question, which commandment is the most important of all? And this was... Not an easy question. Did you know that? That's not an easy question, especially that, that we, it's, it's not a Sunday school question, which you can merely answer what? In a Sunday school, if somebody asks a question, you don't know the answer you're supposed to say? Okay, a little participation. Y'all are doing better. You're supposed to say? Amen, okay? But this question is not like that. It was a regular debate among the religious leaders. The rabbinic tradition had identified 613 commandments in those first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And of those, 365 were negative, 248 were positive. And they had categories for all of these commandments. There's some of those commandments that were light, making less demand, and then there's some of those commandments that were heavy with severe repercussions for disobedience. So the scribe asked Jesus, where do you stand on this most debated question of which of the commandments is the most important? And the Lord gladly obliges. And he gives an answer to the core of what, it, what matters in life. Look at verse 29. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus quotes what Israel called the Shema, right? You find it in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This was the confession of every devout Jew. They would recite it in the morning. They would recite it in the evening. This was the most important commandment. A theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards explains it this way. It was and is the most important to Judaism as is the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed to Christianity, the Shema. It's at the heart and the soul of the Hebrew faith. It's also at the heart and soul of Christianity. There's zero vagueness here, right? When you look at your Bible in verse 29 and you notice the word Lord, it's referencing God's covenantal name, Yahweh, 
This was the name God declared to his people. And Jesus says, Yahweh is our God, but not only that, what does he say? He is the only God. He is one. He's unique in essence. He's unique in existence. There's no other. It's one of the most powerful statements of the uniqueness and the exclusivity. God is God, and Jesus says, love the Lord your God with what? He says, with all of your heart. So God is God, and the God of the Bible says that every bit of your worship, every bit of your love, every bit of your devotion exclusively belongs to God. In the midst of all of this debate with the teachers and the theologians concerning those 613 commandments, Jesus brings it all back to the fundamentals and the non-negotiables of the faith. Love God. Why? Because of who He is. He is our God. Now when one considers what kind of God He is, the Old Testament is replete with examples describing the God whom we are commanded to love. In Exodus 34, the Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And Jesus answered the scribe, love this God. As a Christian, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, our love for God is rooted and founded upon the character of God. See, you need that. You need, this is the difference between being near the kingdom and in the kingdom, is that you understand that your love and affection for God is built and it's founded on what you know and understand about God. Think about that. When you fall into sin, don't you love the fact that God is more gracious, He's more merciful than you are sinful? Is that not good news? See, that's the difference between being near the kingdom and in the kingdom. Those who are in the kingdom are so compelled and controlled with their understanding of the character of God that when they fall short in their own character, that their understanding of God's character outpaces and draws them to worship and adoration in all their affections to this God. And Jesus tells this man and this scribe, this is the God who you are to love. Do you love him like this? In the context of the Shema, God's people were to love him and obey his commandments and statutes. Deuteronomy 6, 2 says that they're to do that for their, all their days, their whole existence. They're to love God, and not only to love God, they're to do what? They're to teach their children. They're to teach their grandchildren. They must love God supremely, and he speaks even further in chapter 6, that you're not to follow after other gods or the gods of the peoples that are among you. You love the Lord your God who is among you, who is a jealous God. And Jesus says, love God. 
love this God. Further, Jesus says, love God in His character supremely. Love Him supremely, but also love Him completely. Look at verse 30. Love Him completely. This is the difference between being in the kingdom and near the kingdom. Verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Look at your Bible. Look at that. Don't look at me. Look at that Bible. Look at verse 30. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Do you see how many alls are there? An awful lot, right? It's an emphasis on the comprehensive nature of how one is to love Yahweh. Love God. It's, it calls for this total, complete love, devotion to God. The heart, the soul, the mind, the strength are called upon to do what? To love God. When you see the word heart, Speaking of the emotions, speaking about that inner self, that real you on the inside. You love God with all of your heart means that you shall not have any other love given over to any other God but the God of redemption. When you see the word soul, it speaks to the spirit, literally the self-conscious life is that you were loving God in your self-conscious. Your soul is wrestling, even in the midst of spiritual depression, even in the midst of spiritual desert, just as we see the psalmist declare to us in Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for God. That even when you're in the midst of a valley, even in the midst of a storm, that even when circumstances are not ideal and they're not right according to what you understand to be good or what's desired, that your soul is conscious of the fact that you love a God who's in control of everything. Jesus says, love Him. To be devoted to Him. He continues, the mind. The mind. This this, this is so important because of the culture and the society we live in that looks at you and I like we're a bunch of ignorant people. That Christians are irrational people. But the Bible clearly says you are to be thinking people. And not only that, Jesus says you even love God how you think. The Apostle Paul speaks about that. Right? We're not waging war against the flesh. We got divine power. To break strongholds, we're to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we're to take our thinking captive in obedience to Christ. Finally, he says, strength, your bodily power, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. There's so much overlap, and in short, one theologian describes this verse this way. God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of the whole life for the whole duration of life. That's the question of whether you're in the kingdom or near the kingdom. See, 
It's not based on your perfection to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. It's not based on your performance and your perfection. But it's, it's based on you progressively. You progressively loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Here's, a, here's how you can really wrestle with and understand whether you are loving God that way. Here's a question to think for you to consider. Is the Lord, is the Lord my consuming passion for my life? When you wake up in the morning, do you even think about the God who has redeemed you? Do you ever consider how you might spend your life for the God who redeemed you? How about this? Do 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 I ha have an ever-deepening, abiding affection for the Lord? Am I loyal to God? Do I have any loyalty? If someone looked at my life, would they say, that's a loyal, devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I, do I resist? Do I oppose anything or anyone that dishonors the Lord? If you're a student and a Christian, in the public school system, that one becomes really, really important. Do you resist and oppose anything or anyone that happens within the context of that school that dishonors the Lord? Do you live honorably? When you live honorably, you're saying, I love God. Am I zealous to defend the Lord's name and honor and truth? See, I'm going to hit you somewhat hard here. Society and culture is morally decaying. Did you notice that? Has anybody noticed that? Okay, fine. If, if not, you don't have a Twitter account, right? And you don't have a social media account. But it's, it's decaying. But where have Christ, the Christians been? They've been hanging out in a Christian ghetto. They've been peeling back, running from society and culture because we're afraid to engage in society and culture in understanding that Jesus calls the church to be engaged in society and culture. It's an expression of our love for Jesus and our belief on the commissioning of Jesus. Rabbit trail, sorry. Here's one. Do you even enjoy spending time with the Lord? Do you enjoy it? Notice I didn't say, do you spend time with the Lord? Do you enjoy spending time with Jesus? Do I seek and find joy in pleasing the Lord? Do I praise the Lord to others? Does anybody in your family ever hear you talking about the Lord and all the good things that the Lord is doing in and through and amongst your family? This one was incredibly convicting. Do you ever tell the Lord, I love you? I love you, Lord. Do you even talk to him? See, you might compare how a man loves his wife to how a citizen of the kingdom loves God. And Jesus didn't stop there, did he? Look at verses 31 through 34. The command to love others genuinely. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus gives the man more. Think about it. The lawyer asks the most important command, and Jesus tells him there's two. There's two that go hand in hand like bullets and handguns, right? Sunshine and blue skies. He says, these two. How you respond to loving God, it will determine how you respond to the second commandment. Did you know that? How you respond to loving God determines how you respond to loving your neighbor as yourself. Because your obedience to the second command shows that you truly embraced the first one. Check that. Think about that. The reason that you can love others and love your neighbor, it is empowered and enabled by your obedience and your love for the first commandment. So often we think, I can't love those kind of people. Amen? You know those kind of people. They may be in this room. Please do not lift your hand or point a finger. But it's difficult. People are difficult. I'm a difficult person. I've got two to bear witness on the front row that I can be a very difficult person. I could be a difficult person to love. But Jesus is doing something here. Look at it. Look at it. Jesus is doing something. He, the law is... not Many of us look at the law this way. It's about avoiding things. It's about prohibitions. But the law is really after something. Do you know what it's after? See, the law is really after this. Love. Jesus already stated that in, when he quoted Deuteronomy. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he adds what? He adds Leviticus 19. Growing out of your love for God, one loves those whom were created in the image of God. If you look at the word neighbor in a restrictive sense, you're missing it. It's all of humanity. Even your enemies are in view here. If you go look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, you get an idea of what sort of the character of a citizen of the kingdom of God, somebody that's in the kingdom, not just near the kingdom. You see Jesus talk about it with the parable of the good Samaritan in Luke 10. But when you look at, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you make sense of self-love without becoming narcissistic? You ever thought about that? It's like, I, Jesus said that, how do I do that? What does that actually mean? See, it begins with your theology, namely the theology of the Imago Deo. Do you believe that every human being was created in the image of God? Do you believe in the redeeming love of God? See, this morning in a crowd, in a congregation this big, I'm grieved that many of you probably this morning, you struggle with hating yourself. You do not like who you are. The qualities and the characteristics that make up who you are, the more that you acknowledge them, the more it creates this emotional resentment 
for yourself. Sadly, not only that, that's the inside narrative, but that outside narrative is, is that you can recall someone treating you as someone that didn't have dignity or value as being made in the image of God. And so you have this hate for yourself. And you played yourself right into the hands of the devil, whose aim is destruction and subverting the will of God. And Jesus says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Loving yourself. See, when you do not have a self-love, of, a self-love you have an issue of hatred for self, which is an offense to God. You're calling into question the goodness and the wisdom of God when you do not love who God created you to be. See, when the psalmist declares, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Do you love the fact that from your mother's womb, God made you? That God made you. See, somebody that's in the kingdom understands that. That doesn't mean that they don't have sin. doesn't mean that they don't have flaws. It's just they're deeply rooted in understanding that God graciously created and gave them life and also recreated and gave them life by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what flows from this? A love of person, a person has for him self or herself now gets what it gets turned out it gets turned out and it gets released love your neighbor as yourself when you love yourself you get to love others and notice what jesus the command to love others think about this he makes clear the focus is not based on what how you feel does it say anything about how you does Jesus say, he doesn't go any, into anything about your feelings, right? Like, that's, that's how you know you're in the kingdom, is that you're not allowing yourself to be swayed by emotions, but you're swayed by objective truth and facts. It's about you being factual that the action in the command is to love others. Isn't that the action which Jesus instructed his disciples. In Mark 8, 34, he says, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, the more that you love yourself, the more that you deny yourself, therein the more that you're willing to genuinely love other people. That's why Jesus said there's no other commandment greater than these. And your ability to love others. Can I tell you that the cause for much of the cold church culture and much of the harmful church culture that's so prevalent in the South is based on the inability of the church to love other people? It's been toxic. It's been toxic because... We have allowed ourselves to love others based on how we feel. And if you are in the kingdom, it's not based 
on feelings. It's on facts and objective truth. Jesus said, love others as yourself. We'll conclude with a text in Leviticus 19. Turn in your Bibles there. You may have done a quiet time in Leviticus 19, and we will congratulate you after the gathering if you're doing your devotions in Leviticus 19. But I bring you here because this is where Jesus is quoted. He's concluded that quote and added that you love your neighbor as yourself. He's building it off of Leviticus 19. As you get to Leviticus 19, he's giving real easy primers on how to love your neighbor. So in his kindness, God has not left it to our own imaginations concerning what it means to love other people as ourselves. It's such a great importance. We see it in the New Testament happening over and over again. Love one another, love one another, love one another. But I bring you into Leviticus 19, verse 10. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Verse 10. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So you love your neighbor by caring and making provision for them. Verse 11. You love your neighbor as yourself. When you do it, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, You shall not lie to one another. Like, you love your neighbor as yourself when you're honest and truthful to their face, not behind their back. We're better at talking about them than talking to them. If you're talking about them, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're talking to them, you're loving your neighbor as yourself. Continue in verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the Blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Putting a stumbling block before the blind. You're, you're going to be fair. You're going to be fair. You're not going to put obstacles in front of people that have a disability or inability to do something. You're going to figure out ways to create a wide road, accessibility, so that you aren't taking advantage of someone that's at a disadvantage. You're loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15. You deal justly with them. You shall do no injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Deal justly with all. You love your neighbor as yourself means that you can't show partiality to those that are more theologically astute, more theologically well-spoken, than the people that are a little bit farther behind, or maybe that's just not their strong suit. It's easy to gather around people that share the same theological IQ and competency, amen? Like, those are fun conversations. Those are incredible conversations, But if you prefer them over the other, you may not be loving your neighbor as yourself. 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Slander is a real problem in the church. 
It's like talking to them. Love your neighbor by talking to them, not about them. Look at verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Do not jeopardize the life of your neighbor. Verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason with him frankly with your neighbor. So you don't harbor some sort of hatred. If you have a sin against another brother or sister, the more that you bury that in your heart, the more bitter you become. Maybe today is the day that you, the Lord brought you here and you have a grievance against another brother or sister in this room and the, the singing that will take place in a couple moments, you have an opportunity to reconcile. Or after the, the gathering, you have an opportunity to reconcile with those that you've harbored hatred. And guess what? You may harbor hatred against someone and they may not even know it. And you may be surprised in that moment, but you readily receive their repentance. Verse 17 again. You don't rebuke your neighbor unless it's necessary for their good and your own good. For their good. If you know someone is acting in immaturity and sin, you have a Christian responsibility to admonish them. That's part of being in the kingdom, right? You're loving your neighbor by admonishing them. Finally, in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, so Jesus has pulled in these Two commandments, building upon them, trying to help this guy understand whether the difference for us of knowing in the king, being in the kingdom or near the kingdom. Notice the scribe's delight in verse 32 and 33. You are right. Some of you like hearing that, right? You love being, this man affirmed Jesus' confession of the exclusivity of the one true God, the comprehensiveness of love, devotion, and worship of God and others. So much so, it drew the praise of Jesus. Look, notice the scribe is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus is impressed, and then Jesus is impressed because he's added something to it. You love God supremely, you love the neighbor sincerely, and he says it's far more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Because religious rituals, they don't have any real meaning, do they? They don't have any real meaning if they're not what? Expressions of your love of God and others. Samuel would say it's better Obedience is better than sacrifice. That doing justice and righteousness is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice, Proverbs 21. See, love is the true sacrifice. That's what you understand if you're in the kingdom. Love is the true sacrifice. Jesus was pleased with the scribe's answer. And what did he say? You are not far from the kingdom it's a question we started with how do you know how do you know whether you are near the kingdom or in the kingdom do you look at your bible do you notice 
Jesus doesn't tell him to try harder. He doesn't send him away and say, obey some more rules, obey some more regulations, then you're going to gain access into the, into the kingdom. You're going to become a citizen. Here's how you know whether you are near in the kingdom. See, entrance into the kingdom of God is something received, not earned. That was the real sticking point for the religious leaders. Jesus was ushering in a new kingdom, and it was not earned, it was received. Have you received? Have you received Jesus Christ as Lord? If you have, you received Christ, you understand you're obeying rules, you understand you're obeying regulations, they're never going to measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. If you're in the kingdom, you acknowledged that you needed a new heart. If you are in the kingdom, you wholly confess completely your need for grace and the mercy of God, which can make you a new creature. You draw near to the one who ushered in the kingdom that we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And you understand that if you're in the kingdom, the one who enters the kingdom of God, not by religion, but by relationship in Jesus Christ, Guess what it does? It's a relationship that results in truly loving God supremely and loving others sincerely. So as you behold the cross of Jesus, it tells us so much. When you look at the cross of Jesus, I want you to think about this. It tells you that Jesus loves the Father supremely and Jesus loves you sincerely. That when you look at the cross, those who are in the kingdom look at the cross and rejoice in the good news that they have entrance into the kingdom. Now the question this morning is whether you are near or whether you're in. See, with great confidence, when you come into the kingdom of God, you understand it comes by faith alone. You understand that it comes through grace alone. And you, to the praise of his glorious grace, you know that it comes through Christ alone. Do you know him? Are you in the kingdom? Or are you just in the vicinity? Today, you have an opportunity to respond. Let's pray. Father, we know, God, that you are love. We know that we did not love you first, but you loved us first. Father, we know that you demonstrated your love, that while we were still enemies, and sinners, we know that you demonstrated your love when you crucified your only begotten Son. We know with great confidence that we can come. We can turn from our sins and we can come by faith and experience the gospel. This morning I pray that as we wrestle with and consider the realities of the gospel, and the implications of the gospel in our lives, I pray that your spirit would fill us with an earnestness to really wrestle with this question, what is the most important commandment? That you would lead us to consider which parts of our lives where we're not loving you wholeheartedly, 
and we're not loving others sincerely. We pray, Jesus, that we would be able to respond in repentance. We would be able to respond in faith for the good of others, our own joy, but ultimately your glory. As we respond and receive this grace, I pray that we would rejoice in Jesus' name.